This is the Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com. Philosopher with uh, Keith Preston of Attack the System and Keith Preston's article uh, Science, Spirituality, and Ethical Individualism. Uh, Keith Preston, great having you back on the show and also join here with Matt Pegas. Yeah, good to be back. Great to co-host. So I guess to get some kind of like background information with Rudolf Steiner, uh, yeah, he was an Austrian occultist, philosopher, uh, basically like a, a renaissance Man in the true sense with his work on science, spirituality, political philosophy, art, architecture, ethics, uh, pioneer in education and agriculture. Uh, I think like today, like best known for the Steiner Waldorf schools, but not that much is known about him beyond that. And uh, so, yeah, Keith, if you just want to give some background information about your your article, Science, Spirituality, and Ethical Individualism, and then also, uh, is this out yet as we recorded, and uh, is this also in reference to uh, Troy Southgate, who's uh, kind of associated with the national anarchist scene, has a new, he also has a new book out about, on, on Shiner, so if you want to just kind of give some background information about the article. Yeah, uh, I have an article coming out soon in one of Troy Southgate's compilations. I know Troy has several works on Steiner coming out, I believe. I think there's one book that he wrote about Steiner himself, and then I think there's going to be a compilation of articles about Steiner and another book, um, including an article by myself. But yeah, I have an article coming out called uh, Scientific Spirituality and Ethical Individualism that explores certain aspects of Steiner's thinking. Um, one of the most interesting aspects of Steiner, and, and this is something that uh, we can find in a lot of other thinkers. Uh, some years ago, I wrote a book called Thinkers Against Modernity, and that explores... Uh, the oh, ideas yeah, we recorded a, a show on that. I remember that. Yeah, and that explored a, a um, variety of thinkers who, who addressed some of these uh, same issues, albeit from different perspectives, often often much different perspectives. But one problem that modern people face is that um, the impact of the Enlightenment was that it basically, on one hand, it, it liberated the human uh, thinking from superstition and from blindly following tradi- tradition or, or irrationality for its own sake, 
of course, you know, out of the Enlightenment, we got things like separation of church and state and all these kinds of things. Uh, and then also we got well, modern science comes out of the Enlightenment. Um, and while there's obviously a lot of upsides to that, there were also some, some consequences to that. And there were a lot of thinkers that emerged in the 19th and 20th century that were interested in this question, well, what happens when people become unmoored from their traditional roots, from their, their cultural and spiritual roots? Um, now, for example, uh, Emil Durkheim explored this idea. He was interested in, the, in this great concept he called anime. And he thought one of the impacts of modernity was that people were being uprooted from their sense of place, their sense of attachment. Uh, you know, in, in older, more traditional societies, people would think of themselves as being part of a community, a tribe, a clan, a family, a religion, uh, a culture. Um, you know, the, the societies like that were more static in many ways, uh, and they were more stifling of individualism in many ways. People also tended to have a strong sense of identity or belonging or, or things like that. Now, what happens in modern societies is that when people become much more mobile, when we develop a much more individualistic society, when we develop a much more fluid society, uh, and people start to lose all of those kinds of attachments. I mean, the contemporary United States is a perfect example. In the contemporary United States, we see that people live in neighborhoods where they don't know any of their neighbors personally, and then their neighbors change over. So this over was starting to be getting to happen uh, in the 19th century in the Industrial Revolution. So with Steiner, uh, uh, I think like the time frame, I think he died about a decade before World War II, so his time frame, this was roughly where he was most... Uh, intellectually active was maybe, would you say roughly from like the 1890s to 1920s? Yes, exactly. He was born in the 1860s, and I think he died in, um, I believe it was in 1925 that he died. Uh, so the bulk of the work that he's known for was done in the early 20th century, uh, you know, in the first quarter century of the, of the 20th century. Um, so he lived right in the period when the modern industrial revolution was really starting to consolidate itself and we really start to see modernity coming into its full fruition. Uh, and he was one of the many people of the time who was concerned about the impact of this on culture, on, uh, on the human personality, the human spirit. Uh, you know, he thought that while there may be obviously advantages to some of these things, things were of value were also being lost as well. And like I was saying earlier, we, we still see this going on today. We have this problem that uh, Robert Putnam, the uh, Princeton, I believe, sociologist, uh, wrote about it some years ago called Bowling Alone, where people have no sense of attachment or belonging, and you have all these fragmented individuals that are kind of adrift, and you have this thing that uh, Durkheim called anime associated with that. And it was this kind of stuff that Steiner was interested in examining. You know, he, he thought that the that human beings in modernity had become unmoored from their traditional roots and that nothing satisfactory had replaced that. So, yeah, that is, uh, yeah, that, that existential crisis that emerged, uh, yeah, it's, it's still kind of like going in cycles, but I think it's today, I mean, obviously today, but it first emerged in the 19th century, the industrialization. And uh, I think to kind of look at the United States today, because, uh, like, I'm not I'm not 100% uh, 
not like totally anti-American because there is like there's a case there is a case to be made that there is like a Promethean spirit that is uniquely American that created a lot of uh, in- innovation but definitely we do have to look at American society today like it is fundamentally broken uh, you give examples of America's foreign policy and how the US foreign policy is responsible for millions of deaths around the world with like wars and coups and counterinsurgency campaigns but just looking at American society and uh, just like like deaths of despair and the mental health crisis but I think I mean it's pretty it's pretty clear to say that America is America simultaneously epitomizes like the values of you could say like liberalism or modernity more than any other uh, any other uh, nation and it's a kind of value value system that's maybe like loosely loosely based upon like liberal humanism capitalism some kind of like vaguely christian influences but then also a kind of like oppressive uh bureaucratic managerial structure in the both the private and public sector but i do think it does say a lot that i think the point the point that you make is that america it both epitomizes modernity more than any other uh, nation or society, but it's also American society today. It's obviously, unless someone has been living in a cave, is a fundamentally uh, broken society. Well, yeah, and it's interesting to compare the current time with the time period in which Steiner was doing his work, because the, what we're experiencing today, particularly in the United States, but I think in, in the Western world generally, is very similar to what happened in the Industrial Revolution in the sense that it was a time of very, very rapid change, uh, very rapid cultural change, very rapid scientific change, um, very rapid uh, technological advancement, and, and very, very rapid economic change. Um, we, we have to consider that in you know in the mid um, twenty in, in the mid nineteenth century, uh, photography was a brand new invention. Um, railroads were a fairly new invention. Uh, by the early 20th century, uh, you know, 50 years later, we're starting to see cars and airplanes and radio and, and telegrams and telephones and, and all of those kinds of things. Uh, and you also saw population becoming much more mobile at the time where you had huge numbers of people moving away from the countryside in rural areas and farming communities and moving towards cities and then getting jobs in factories and, and things like that in a way that was a very uh, dehumanizing type of existence. You know, if you're used to uh, working the land in a, in a family farm and now you're working uh, in a factory somewhere in, a, in, an, in an urban uh, situation. Nowadays, we see something similar in the United States where we, we're also seeing very, very rapid technological development. Um, we're seeing people become much more mobile. I mean... Uh, at one point, people would spend their entire lives in the same neighborhood. Now they go from state to state, if not country to country. Uh, and while, like I said, there may be advantages to that as well. Uh, but there is a sense of rootlessness that comes along with this. And we see some of the same kinds of anime uh, today that we saw in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, for instance, in the United States, life expectancy is actually declining. No, I think it's probably, uh, like, the concept atomy or atomization, it's probably the most extreme. The United States uh, today, the most extreme that it's been in in history, probably. Hmm. 
Oh, I would say so. Yeah, I, I, I think that's probably entirely correct. Um, and e even people from other countries will notice that when they come to the United States, um, they will say, well, you know, you Americans, you know, you have lots of money, uh, or at least we used to, but uh, uh, you don't have any culture, you know, you don't have any sense of community. Uh, you're all just about looking out for number one, and you're all in, in competition with each other. Uh, and I think that's true, at least compared to many other cultures. Um, you know, and and I was saying that uh, you know we see life expectancy going down, uh, which is unheard of in developed societies. Um, we also see um, uh, you know increases in suicide rates, drug overdose rates, alcoholism. Obviously, we've got this problem with you know, crazy people going off and doing mass shootings and stuff like that. Uh, so that I think is reflective of a cultural environment where what Durkheim called anime is pervasive, and I, it was this kind of stuff that Sterner, uh, that Steiner was interested in trying to address as well. He saw some of these same things happening in the early 20th century during the Industrial Revolution, and we're seeing it now as a consequence of globalization and the digital revolution and all of the things we're presently experiencing. I think the other trend which uh, Steiner uh, definitely addressed is that traditional religion has been, even though it's been kind of dismissed as a superstition, it's sort of been replaced by these new secular religions that are only getting more extreme and aggressive. So ideo ideologies assume the role of religion, and many of the early like thinkers of that era, they predicted that they would, but these moral moral crusades, uh, new sets of principles, orthodoxies, like such as social justice, secular religions, such as like recognizing that the past like a kind of religious sense that the past was full of like bigotry and this has to be, that has to be corrected in a dualistic dichotomy of good versus evil. Uh, let's say like you could say like the progressive versus the reactionary, like taking on that kind of religious role. Then also uh, any contradictory of like certain liberal orthodoxies are dismissed as hate and not, not legitimate to debate or rebuttal, but, Basically, they warrant uh, suppression and the, zealous, the zealousness of uh, secular academics and uh, just, yeah, just these like these ideas like secular heresies of racism, sexism, and uh, becoming like blasphemies, and then also also the idea of like scientism. Uh, even like a lot of like leftist intellectuals like Max Weber and even some of the Frankfurt School intellectuals were skeptical of scientism, but it's scientism is more science takes on the rule as a religion rather than a kind of like process of uh, discovery and uh, like Steiner's views, uh, his philosophy of like anthropology philosophy or a spiritual science I think rejected reject it addressed those those issues or the, di the dichotomy but Steiner's view was more that uh, yeah spirituality was linked to science and uh, and that uh, science was he would would have rejected scientism but that science was an ongoing process of continued discovery and there's no limits to human knowledge. Yeah, well, we see all of that being played out today as well. Like, it, one of the ideas that came out of the Enlightenment was that religion was the 
you know, more or less the root of all evil. That that all we had that you know, like you had thinkers like Voltaire and some of the philosophes. They would look at the history of oppression by the church, and they would say, well, religion is really the root of all evil. You know, if we got rid of religion, people wouldn't be superstitious. We wouldn't have persecution and, and all these kinds of things. Well, that viewpoint turned out to be fairly naive because you know the the, the religion was just a reflection of the human psyche and, and human inclinations, mm-hmm. um, and so when when traditional metaphysical religion started to disappear and lose its influence, uh, it was simply replaced by other ideas because you know human beings have to have some way of ordering their own psyche in order to interpret the world around them and navigate reality. Um, and that's why we have ideologies and religions and philosophies and, and things like that. And it's not that any of these things are true in some uh, in, in some absolute or cosmic sense. It's simply that they're more like tools that people use to try to understand things. Or you see it's a tool like these uh, modern ideologies because state power or just to create a cohesive civilization, there's a need for some ideology to maintain a society or to or to maintain the legitimacy of power so these ideologies they they serve that role yeah uh, there's multiple layers to that uh, if we look at the history of different societies we see every ruling class that ever existed going all the way back to the earliest civilizations had some kind of self-legitimating ideology like there was some official pronouncement of you know the king rules legitimately because he is a god, or he is appointed by God, or you know he was elected by the people, or he's a manifestation of the people's will. Or there's always some ideological superstructure, as the Marxists call it, that you uh, mm-hmm. that is used by any kind of state system to legitimize the current system of rule. I mean, almost no rulers in history have ever come out and said, "You should obey us because we have more power than you." How's that? Uh, Although that may amount be what it amounts to in practice, but it, but uh, rulers and leaders in societies want to be perceived as legitimate. Also, beyond that, though, for any kind of society to work, there also has to be some kind of shared value system among the members of the particular society. One reason why we see so much polarization and uh, increasing fragmentation in our own society in the United States is because there's a um, there's no shared set of values among the all the different uh, population groups. Uh, we have a nation of 331 million people subdivided into um, uh, an infinite number of subcultures with radically different views on on virtually everything, um, and it's hard to have any kind of uh, shared value system or shared uh, political system or basis for law or anything like that. Uh, I think that's why increasingly every election that happens, the the losing side always says the other side cheated. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Biden won the last election, so the Trump people are saying, yeah, well, well it was rigged. Yeah, uh, ironically, it, uh, technology and the internet, social media enable that. Yeah, and, and another thing about social media is that while it, it also provides access to information that you would not have had when you had a, a narrower range of options as far as the media, it also creates these echo chambers that people retreat into where they're only hearing their own side. Uh, you see that with cable TV. Uh, you, you, you have uh, 
uh, MSNBC, for example, has one niche market. Fox has another niche market. CNN has their niche market. ABC and CBS and NBC and then Newsmax and OAN, all these different television networks have their own niche market that are essentially appealing to different political tribes. And what those tribes that watch these networks are looking for is they want their own tribal values to be reaffirmed. You know, they're not looking for Socratic discourse on controversial topics. They're looking for their own values to be confirmed. So these are essentially just new religions uh, or new ethnic tribes, just like they had in pre-modern. So yeah, tribes. with uh, with Steiner, uh, so with science, uh, both both the modernists and traditionalists believe that science and religion are at odds, and he had a view that with spiritual science that they were interconnected. So science proved the existence of religion, and and vice uh, versa, and then with spirituality. Uh, because, yeah, like a lot of a lot of the issues that, were, that society faces today, maybe you could say linked to rejecting traditional spirituality. So he did, he did place a strong emphasis uh, on spirituality. So and then also was was Steiner was he influenced by Christian mysticism, like going back to Swedenborg? Yeah, um, he was. Steiner was interested in mystical uh, practice and traditions, and he had been influenced by some of the Christian mystics and, and thinkers like that. Um, I, I think of any modern thinker, though, that most compares to uh, Steiner, the one that comes to mind is probably Carl Jung. Carl well, he Jung... was prior to Jung, but he was a major... So Jung is far more uh, well-known and renowned, but... Mm -hmm. Steiner was a major influence on Jung. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, if you're familiar with Carl Jung, you, you have a good idea of how Steiner also approached some of these ideas. Because Steiner was not anti-science, but he didn't necessarily take the position that, okay, we've got science over here, and we've got mysticism and spirituality and religion over here. He, he had this idea that it wasn't inherently true that, say, mysticism or spirituality was unscientific, that rather you might need science to understand, say, spirituality in different ways. Uh, but he wasn't, he, didn't, he wasn't like a strict materialist or rationalist in the same way that somebody like, say, Richard Dawkins would be. Like someone like Richard Dawkins would say, well, okay, you can either be scientific or you can be spiritual. Uh, and... Steiner would have said that's a false dichotomy. Like Steiner would probably say something like, it might very well be scientifically true that the human consciousness survives death. And, you know, say point to something like near death experiences and, you know, some of these things like Oh, because I think people. yeah, so a lot of yeah, so that is uh I'm not sure if you would say that's uh like if you would describe that as parapsychology, but there is a whole community that extensively on YouTube and they extensively study near-death experiences. But mm -hmm. uh, there's like one scientist in Germany today who tries to, he's a scientist and he tries to link that to uh, near-death experiences, like tries to link science and religion. So that does epitomize like Steiner. And then also like uh, a lot of if, I think I, I so I did, I had him on uh, Jeff, like Jeffrey Mishlove, uh, New Thinking Aloud, like a lot of, a lot of, he has a lot of guests who talk about that, and I had him on the show 
quite some time ago. So yeah, like that, that's a good example of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, he, he, in, in modern societies, there's this strong dichotomy that's drawn between science and spirituality. And he, he rejected that. And he was also critical of scientism. That's something you touched on earlier. But scientism is this idea that science is just sort of an end unto itself. Um, you know, science becomes almost like a religion. Um, one of the, another one of the ideas that came out of the Enlightenment was that you know, they, they thought that you know, a lot of the philosophers thought that you could get rid of religion and you wouldn't have superstition anymore and everyone would be devoted to science and through education there could be this process of human perfectibility where humans would consistently uh, experience a process of moral evolution and enlightenment and things like that. Uh, you know, and it turned out to be sort of an over, overly optimistic viewpoint. Because what we've seen, uh, you know, in, since then is that science can be applied for extremely dangerous or destructive purposes. I mean, what are some of the products of science? Well, on one hand, we have modern medicine. On the other hand, we've got nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, so it's not like <clears throat> science is inherently liberatory or inherently humane or, or something like that. You know, science is amoral. There's no value judgment associated with science. Yeah, I noticed, like, yeah, so... He did link like spirituality to to genetics, so there is like a lot of there's a subset of anti-vaxxers who are who subscribe to some quote that Shiner had, where uh, he said it was possible to re-engineer the human genome to uh, reject spirituality. So there is that that kind of there's this niche of anti-vaxxers who. Who subscribe they, to that, but then I think also... They, they believe that the that vaccines uh, may be engineered toward that aim of... of, of yeah, negating. there's... Uh, yeah, there's... I mean, uh, you hear similar things about... Um, and I, I haven't looked into this myself. It kind of relates to transhumanism as well. Yeah. I, I'm neither uh, supporting this theory uh, nor arguing against it, but you hear similar stuff about fluoride and the pineal gland and whatnot. Oh, right. But then also I think it's interesting is so... So Immanuel Kant like kind of had like a like a blank slateist view. Uh, so Steiner rejected he rejected actually blank slateism. He believed that people had this like he, he I think he believed in reincarnation and that people were born with the subconscious memory of like their ancestors. But it's kind of interesting and it's kind of like a like a spiritual like a spiritual take on like HBD or like ra- <laughs> racial science and. Uh, I think on our show, I remember like Matt and I showing like the new religion. We talked right. about like a sort of like right wing take on theosophy, but Steiner he, he believed that yeah, like race was some kind of like physical manifestation of human spiritual evolution. But at the same time, like he, I think he wasn't like he wasn't necessarily like a eugenicist because he had like success in like mentoring disabled children, and he also had a belief his kind of individualism that all humans could live up to their full potential. But despite that, like there, I think that is like one thing that is controversial about him because I know the Steiner schools, uh, they, they had to like, they denounced like the racism of Steiner. And actually like I heard a case in the UK where the human, there's a humanist society in the UK that is aggressively pushing for the government to defund the Steiner schools because of that. Yeah, well, his views on that, his some of his views on on race were, you know, fairly 
typical of what you would find of a you know a, an educated class European of the early 20th century. Uh, he held views that might seem somewhat archaic today, but you know were commonplace at the time. But but he was not a racist per se in the sense of somebody who believes in the supremacy of different um, races over others. He was more of the viewpoint that there's a certain uh, almost spiritual or mystical essence to different peoples and population groups. But it's, I think it's, it's interesting a- because, like, Evola, Evola had the view of, like, race, spiritual races, but Evola was, like, Julius Evola was, like, a pure spirituality and rejected the material. With Steiner, he did believe that the two, the spirituality and the genetics, like, the two, the material and the material were interlinked. Hmm. Yeah, and he had an idea similar to what's called the collective unconscious. I think you were referring to that earlier, uh, Robert, where there's a, there was a theory that uh, came out of some of these schools of thought that uh, a, a, a people have a collective memory of their own of their own heritage and culture that is, I guess you could say, almost genetically transmitted uh, in the sense that you sort of inherit a, a type of uh, a collective cultural memory from your ancestors. Uh, which is uh, a, a somewhat Jungian concept. It's this idea that there's this layer to conscious that consciousness that transcends uh, material reality and which is connected to other psyches and things like that, uh, which is an interesting set of ideas. And you, then does you do it also kind people. of, yeah, like, I think it also kind of gets into parapsychology that the idea, this kind of like mysticism where some people believe that different people interact in the dream world. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that theory as well. Um, uh, you know, there's even theories that people can communicate with the dead uh, through some of these. Um, I think no, Steiner actually. So yeah, Steiner actually did because he had an experience where he saw he communicated and actually saw like an aunt of his who died. I think of a suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Steiner's uh, Steiner's approach to religion was also very similar to that of William James. Uh, William James was an American philosopher, who, and uh, I guess you could say he was an early psychologist who studied religious experience. Um, and he was uh, he lived, I guess, roughly the same time as Steiner, maybe a little before. But um, he had this idea that the reality of religious experience is subjective based on what it means to the individual who has the experience. You know, he thought that you couldn't really quantify uh, these kinds of metaphysical or religious or spiritual experiences. So theosophy? Uh, well, I don't know that William James was a theosophist, but the- theosophy was definitely in the current, in, in the air at the time. He was probably he was probably aware of it and familiar with it. I, I don't know that he personally subscribed to it, but that, this was a common idea in the late 19th and early 20th century when some of the figures we're talking about now were alive. But um, you know, William James thought that you know what, spiritual experiences are real in the sense that they're real to the people who have the experience. Like, let's say that you have uh, a vision where you see the face of Jesus in the clouds. All right. Well, somebody, some people might laugh at that and say, "Well, that's stupid. You're having a, you know, you're seeing things. You're having a hallucination." But what the reality of it, though, is what it means to the person who has that experience. You know, um, somebody who, for example, 
has a, a what they think is a religious vision and they're motivated to take action uh, because of it, okay, that's that's real to them. Um, or um, uh, one example that thinkers like William James and, and Carl Jung were interested in was uh, people who overcome things like alcoholism through religious conversion. You often find this among alcoholics where you'll have somebody who's a, an alcoholic and then they find religion and then they'll say that you know, religion saved them from alcoholism. And you find this on different religions, Christianity, Islam, and others. Um, all right, so the, the question is, it's not really a matter of whether that re religion's theological tenets are true in some absolute sense, you know, like, you know, like whether the, the, the Quran is really divinely inspired or the Bible or whatever. But the issue is, what does it mean to the person that has that experience? You know, <clears throat> if somebody believes that this or that, you know, idea, spiritual idea is real, then it is real for them because they act as if it's real. Um, and then their behavior is influenced in, in, in a way that it would be if it was real. And, and I think that's a, mm -hmm. a, a dimension of, of Steiner's thinking and, and also Jung, William James, some of these other people uh, that was you know, fairly pervasive. It, it, it's often something that, that's lost nowadays, I think, on a lot of people. Uh, you know, like I said, we have to. We live in a society where it tends to be divided between okay, there's materialists and skeptics and rationalists, and then there's people who believe in religion and spirituality. But it's it's almost like an in between would be people who delve into this sort of Jungian or Steinerian psychological depth, where it's it is it is a it is a post enlightenment way of thinking. It is a fundamentally scientific, or at least not anti scientific, way of thinking but uh, with, with an eye toward the effects some of these sorts of psychological or spiritual experiences can have on people, it's almost like looking at the, 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 the real-world effects of, of such notions rather than their, you know, capital T, truth, empirical wow. viability, uh, you know, verifiability. Well, another illustration is I've known a number of people personally who claim to have experienced some kind of religious conversion or some kind of heightened awareness or, you know, personal transformation while under the influence of psychedelic drugs, right. like, uh, you know, LSD or, or magic mushrooms or DMT or some of these things. All right. Now the conventional scientific response to that would be, yeah, they're hallucinating. They're having a delusion or whatever, but from Steiner's perspective, this is it would also be a question. Uh, related to to like Timothy Leary's idea of like accessing the astral planes via psychedelics. Definitely. Yeah. Oh yeah, Leary. Some of Leary's ideas were definitely influenced by some of these kinds of traditions. Just to kind of go over uh, the philosophical in influence. So, uh, so Steiner, he was definitely. Uh, he was influenced by like German Romanticism uh, and uh, Johann uh, Wolfgang von Goethe, and uh, there was just some sense of uh, being maybe being at odds with the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment thinking that was rationalist and materialist. Uh, but his embrace of subjectivity, and he was probably influenced by Nietzsche as well. He, he did. Uh, document uh, a lot of Nietzsche's work when he was invalid, but 
and to assist in the collection of, of his work. So he was influenced by Nietzsche to a degree, but Nietzsche was more of a, of a materi- materialist. And, uh, yeah, I was thinking about Nietzsche so, earlier yeah, when we were like, kind of going over this. I think so. So because... like, if you want to kind of talk about like the, these like converging influences, does, does Steiner does, was he, inf- so he was influenced by Goethe and then what, where does he, how does he relate to, to uh, Nietzsche, and then also to thinkers like even, even thinkers like uh, Crow- uh, Alistair Crowley to a degree. Yeah. Um, well, once again, these were all currents that were in the air in European intellectual culture during this time. Um, Nietzsche came slightly before Steiner, um, and it's obvious that Steiner was influenced by Nietzsche's work. In fact, he, he said he was. Um, I think they had they had somewhat similar interests, but they they diverged in certain ways. Um, both Nietzsche and Steiner were interested in the impact of modernity on the human psyche. Um, Nietzsche famously had this concept of last man, and he felt that the idea behind that was he thought that mass societies where people were essentially equal in status and where people had their basic material needs met. He thought that these would produce societies where there were no longer any human aspirations, where there was no longer any human struggle. Um, And Nietzsche was concerned about the impact of that on the human psyche and then the the consequences of that for culture, for the creation of human culture. Uh, You know, he he thought that, you know, you know, world where those kinds of values became the norm, you would just have a very mediocre culture um, of, uh, and a population of mediocre people. It's, it's, a, it's the same criticism that a lot of traditional European conservatives have had actually of America. Uh, a lot of the traditional European right, like the true intellectual right, will look at a country like the United States and they will say, look, that's what the modernity has produced. You know, you have a society where commercial values and materialism and consumerism uh, are considered superior and, you know, and the Americans, their idea of culture is McDonald's and Britney Spears and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and nobody has any appreciation for high culture. And, so, and- yeah, so I remember the show Thinkers Against Modernity we talked about like aristocratic individualism and uh, I think you described it as anarchism of the right. So yeah, like the yeah. Nietzsche, yeah. but then also themes with Oscar, Oscar Wilde and Aleister Crowley. And right. with this kind of aristocratic individualism, do you want to kind of like resummarize the concept and is it relevant to Steiner? Well, the concept behind aristocratic individualism is the idea that you need to have, according to the, the, the philosophy of the, the theory, you have to have a society where uh, individual aspirations can be fulfilled in a way that produces greatness. Um, thinkers with this kind of outlook are concerned that egalitarianism, democracy, you know, all of these and kinds also of capital, things. Also capitalism cap- and mercantile and capitalism, values. Yeah, capitalism and the dominance of commercial values. They're concerned that all of these things undermine greatness. Uh, they look at it like if you look at history, you see these great 
thinkers, you know, philosophers, great artists, great writers, great uh, warriors, great leaders. Uh, you know, they'll they'll look at figures like you know everyone from Aristotle to Alexander the Great to you know to Julius Caesar to you know uh, say Beethoven or Leonardo da Vinci. And they're concerned that in a democratic mass society dominated by commercial values, you're not going to have people like that anymore. You're not going to have um, geniuses and, and uh, what Nietzsche called an ubermensch that rises above the masses and aspires to greatness. They're concerned that you know, modern societies have the effect of not raising the inferior to the level of the superior but bringing the superior down to the level of the inferior. So it's both uh, egalitarianism, but then also, uh, also like what capitalism, or especially like the man- managerial capitalism of today, like what it incentivizes, and it doesn't, like what cap, what capitalism rewards in terms of success. Right. Well, an, an illustration would be uh, this. Around the world, there's a lot of people who really resent the influence of American uh, cultural imperialism. Um, because uh, an example of this would be when you go to, say, European cities today, you see all of this very old architecture that goes back for centuries. And then intermixed with all of that, you see all of these American fast food chains. You know, like like in, I know in um uh, when I was in uh, Holland once, I remember walking past the Queen's Palace, and right next door to it is McDonald's. Um, and uh, you know, people around the world, certainly people with more traditional values, look at this as something that's where something is getting lost. They're saying, "Well, look, you know, we're we're uh, replacing great architecture, great literature, great sculpture, you know, great all all of, the, all of these uh, creative endeavors of the past." Those are being replaced with these, uh, you know, um, cookie cutter, monotone kind of uh, crass commercial cultures. Uh, that that's a, a major criticism that a lot of anti-modernists and traditionalists have of American culture today. But then, uh, yeah, like that angle. But then also, like with aristocratic radicalism, it's more that it doesn't provide an adequate path for, say, like the greatest creative thinkers and innovators to to succeed and rise up. But did Steiner, uh, did he address those issues? Well, I would argue that Steiner was probably somewhat more of a, an egalitarian than... So he was actually... Yeah, he was, so he compared to, to Nietzsche and to Aleister Crowley. Uh, he was much more of an egalitarian. Yeah, I, th- I think so. He, he had a philosophy that was similar in, in terms of his ethical outlook to Martin Buber. Were his similar Buber. like ideas? Like he put more emphasis. So we had Jason Reza Giorgiani on. Like he talks about like Prometheism, and a lot. There's a lot of overlap, but he rejects Steiner primarily because of his acceptance of Christianity. Because Giorgiani is very anti, uh, very staunchly against Christianity. But I think. Like Steiner put a stronger emphasis on Christian values, like uh, compassion. Yeah, yeah, he didn't. No, he didn't have the anti-Christian sentiment that you found in, in uh, some of these thinkers, like Nietzsche. Um, Nietzsche was more concerned with uh, things like the elevation of weakness, slave morality, 
uh, these kinds of ideas. Steiner was less concerned about that. Uh, he was he was concerned about the unmooring of people from traditional cultures and that kind of thing. Yeah, he's and, almost like a half. He's almost like Durkheim meets Crowley more so than Nietzsche. Yeah. You know, uh, obviously that kind of humanitarian I think what's, concern yeah, yeah, would have been anathema to Nietzsche. I think like a good way. Someone's. I think I found this quote on Twitter. Someone said like Steiner had a lot of these values, but he lacked the rigid traditionalism of Edela, nor the psychopathy of Crowley. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, yeah. Yeah, he wasn't really the kind of political reactionary, I guess, that, that Evola was. And he wasn't, he didn't have the antisocial inclinations that some figures in this vein have, like Crowley. Uh, you know, he had on one hand an almost, okay, I, you know, he, he had a, 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 a kind of mystical, ethical outlook that's similar to, to Martin Buber, similar, I, I guess similar in some ways to someone like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, although there's a definitely with a different angle. Um, you know, but it, it wasn't just elitism for its own sake. It wasn't really the idea of, you know, power and strength as virtues for its own sake that you see in some of these kinds of thinkers. Uh, it wasn't really the idea of promoting the idea of a leisure class as the means of through which high culture is achieved. Oh, so uh, yeah, that was, uh, I think, like I talked about, like with aristocratic individualism, right. uh, both Oscar Wilde and Aleister Crowley and, uh, yeah, like Wind Winham Lewis, like they, they believed that a leisure class was necessary for like the greatest innovators, thinkers, uh, Creative visionaries to rise up, but that was never a major concern for uh, Steiner. But he did have his idea was more it was ethical individualism. He was a social reformer as far as like creating systems, just just creating systems for just like a better better way of li living that would be uh, like healthier uh, psychologically and like for just quality of life. So he was a he was a social reformer, and there was like this big wave of social reformers who kind of rose up out of that era, like from the Industrial Revolution to uh, the Progressive Era of the early 20th century. But I guess with, like, individualism, he was he was an individualist, but uh, kind of like these different... But the relation between the individual, the tribe, the nation, and identity, and uh, they're, at, they're sort of at conflict. So his work... So yeah, Steiner uh, embraced the individualism and that the individual being able to live up to their full uh, ten potential. But he also, uh, so he did. He did have criticisms of nationalism, but he recognized like the value in being like rooted to a to a tribe and to a people. So I guess like a, like a big theme was trying to kind of like reconcile the the pros. There's like the pros and cons of individualism and collectivism and reconciling like the best attributes of, of, of rights and empowerment of the individual versus being rooted to a uh, tribe or a people. But would you say there's uh, some compatibility with even something like, like ethnopluralism or enclavism or kind of like, or even like national anarchist ideas, like a, like a folk, a folkish uh, anarchism? Yeah, I think the main thing that Steiner was interested in there was he was interested in trying to find a balance between individualism on one hand 
and not stifling the aspirations of the individual, but on the other hand, allowing for organic community that shares some kind of common cultural identity and, and way of life and things of that nature. Uh, he didn't necessarily want people to be just completely um, 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 individualized automatons that are that are functioning apart from any kind of roots or any kind of connectivity. Uh, but he didn't want something that was so constraining that the individuals, uh, the, the the personality of the individual is subsumed in some kind of collective. Like that's a that's a difference there between Steiner and somebody like Evola. Like Evola was the uh, a big admirer of the caste of the Indian caste system, the Hindu caste system, um, because there that's a system where everybody has an assigned identity. Everybody knows their place, uh, and then supposedly the the whole organism works from all these component parts. But Steiner would have looked at it like something like that is too stifling of the individual. Or would he, I think. Do you think he would have supported a sort of like flexible caste system where it's not it's not rigid, hierarchical, and oppressive, but where where more, more maybe society. But yeah, but I guess like not. Yeah, but like a sort of like volun- a voluntary, like more flexible caste system, not not like the Hindu caste system, but more about helping, like a caste system helping the individual like achieve their full potential via more like specialization which doesn't which does i think i think like the liberal capitalist version of meritocracy fall short on that yeah I, I think that he would look at it like the the ethos that you see in a place like contemporary america where supposedly we have a meritocracy but the you know the theory is well you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and and uh and it's all about what you can do for yourself. Um, Steiner would have looked at that and said, no, the individual needs community. The individual needs a shared uh, set of commonalities with other people. The individual needs an identity to remain psychologically ordered. Um, and something where it's just all about competitive individualism uh, would have been antithetical to Steiner's view on that. You know, he, he, didn't, he wouldn't have wanted something... That was a that was rigidly hierarchical, like the caste system in India. But he would have wanted something where group identity matters as well as individual identity. Um, and you know, I mean, we we see this same problem being played out today in other ways because you know one of the hallmarks of liberalism is that you're liberating the individual from all of these external bonds. You know, you're liberating the individual from the authority of the family, the religion, the community—you know, uh, you know, the state—you have, you know, equal equal rights and civil rights and all that kind of stuff. But what's interesting is that in modern societies, we start to see all of these kinds of tribal identities making a comeback. I mean, there's even a term for it: identity politics. Um, so, you know, nowadays you're starting to actually see people embracing once again you know, uh, race or gender or sexuality or something like that. He was a skeptic of the Westphalian, like, 19th century nationalism or the nationalism that emerged after, like, the Austro-Hungarian Empire broke up at, after World War One. But uh, I'm not really sure, like, what kind of system he supported, but something very kind of, like, like, fle- like flex, like, very kind of, like, flexible, like almost like kind of like on, on, it seems like you know, like something like enclavism or ethnopluralism. 
Yeah, uh, well, a lot of thinkers in this tradition will express admiration for like something like the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, um, where you had uh, multiple ethnic groups under the same transnational uh, European empire, but where there's some degree of autonomy or you know, localized identity for the different groups. Another example is the Ottoman Empire. Like the military you know, system, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that that seems to be the kind of thing that um, Steiner had some kind of sympathy for, um, where, you know, he was, the idea of forming a state based solely on something like national or racial or ethnic identity, I think was something he ironically would have probably opposed. He probably would have thought that was too rigidly uh, constraining. Um, one thing that it's interesting to consider about that, though, is that we have to remember that in the 19th century, liberal nationalism or, or nationalism was considered a liberal idea. Uh, you know, previous, prior to that, European societies organized primarily as these transnational royal dynasties. And then you start to get the, uh, along with the rise of liberalism and then later socialism and things like that, parallel to that is the rise of nationalism. And you have all of these different ethnic groups or nationalities that say share a common uh, language or something or religion or whatever. They're all wanting to unify under a national state of their own. Um, you know, even in the French Revolution, you saw that, where they tried to uh, eliminate the autonomy of the provinces and have a centralized French identity um, you know, and, a, and a uniform language and things like that. Um, then you saw that happen with Germany and then with Italy. Um, and then you, uh, you had a lot. That was a, a common current in the 19th century in Europe, this idea where people of, a, of the same ethno-linguistic identity are going to form their own unitary nation-state apart from one of these uh, multinational empires like, like Austria-Hungary. And uh, Steiner would have had a similar view to that that people like Alain de Benoit take today, which is the idea what, well, is it, that that wasn't that bad of a system. It, it allowed for different uh, cultures to have some degree of homogeneity, you know, and on an organic level and practice some degree of self-determination while being part of this transnational empire or federation or whatever that kept the peace uh, where it wasn't just uh, different ethnic groups, you know, so way so compatible even to something like pan-enclavism, which I advocated for. Yeah, I was, I was oh. going to I was gonna turn a question to you, Robert. I mean, to what extent do you think pan-enclavism, as you've written about in your substack and, and also... Uh, Blackstone as a mouthpiece in your novel has has taken up to what I, I mean. What do you think that kind of could potentially fall under that sort of transnational, uh, um, imperial, uh, ethno pluralist model? That's what I'm basically saying. But uh, but from what I know about Steiner, I think I get the impression that uh, he would he would be more sympathetic to that kind of idea. But I guess like with uh, with the essence with the essence of of Steiner, like the degree he was political, as I said, he's more of a social reformer as far as creating a better system for people to just have a higher quality of life and linking everything like physical health, mental like psychology, spirituality, uh, culture. But uh, I think like the essence is that some kind of like political reconciliation. So he he saw the flaws in the kind of like 
the reactionary, like the rigid uh, traditionalism, and he was opposed to he was opposed to fascism and Marxism, and uh, I'm not sure if he would have been sympathetic to something like uh, distributism. Yeah, like some of his he had like an economic. He did have an economic system, like it does actually does sound somewhat similar to distributism, but I think the essence that, that Steiner was political was creating some kind of like reconciliation because the whole dichotomy is like either you're a reactionary or a modernist and trying to kind of like reconcile that there's there's a net there's like a third way beyond beyond like going back to the past or these like or like the failures of fascism and communism. But doesn't mean we have to embrace uh, modern society as it is. Like there is this like alternative, and I think that that's that's what I do see the essence of his political thought. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. He was trying to strike a balance between spirituality and science, between individuals and organic communities and, and organic cultures. You'd also say he would be sympathetic to distributism as an economic model. Yeah, well, in those days, you had a lot of thinkers who solve all the problems with the industrial uh, the industrial revolution and its impact but also uh, opposed communism and things like that um, you know so distributism was one and Steiner to, to the degree that there's a coherent economic uh, idea that comes out of his work it, it, it sounds very similar something like that either distributism on the right or something like guild socialism on the left um, although it, it, it's interesting that the day that you know Steiner is labeled a, a racist or whatever, because he always actually rejected ethnic chauvinism. Yeah, you know, he he opposed anti-Semitism. Uh, he opposed racial determinist eugenic theories. You know, he was opposed to the German National Socialists uh, when they started becoming prominent. Interestingly, he also opposed Zionism. He also thought that Zionism was another manifestation of of this kind of uh, reductionist, modern, uh, biological racism or ethno-nationalism. Before I wrap up the show, uh, Keith, is there anything else you want to add about Steiner's ideas? And then also, uh, do you see, like, uh, Steiner, his thought uh, of having a lot of solutions that can address contemporary problems in our current existential and political crisis? And do you also see any, uh, any current modern thinkers that are parallel that have parallels to Steiner uh, today. Well, I definitely think some of his views are highly relevant to things that we're experiencing at the same time. Because as I was saying earlier, um, you know, what's going on in the world today is very similar to what was going on in the world during Steiner's time. Uh, particularly in the United States, we see all of these uh, arguments going back and forth over things like cultural identity. You know, like uh, you know, where identity politics of different types. Uh, you know, whether it's the leftist identity politics or whether it's something like you know, MAGA, which is sort of an implied identity politics. Um, all all of these things, I think, are efforts to reclaim some of these things that have been lost along the way. The sense of belonging to something, the sense of uh, being a part of some kind of organic community. In fact, I think that's why increasingly bizarre ideas are becoming popular, like uh, QAnon and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, as far as thinkers in, in, in Steiner's vein that, uh, that are influential today, there are thinkers like that on the margins. But I think if somebody came along and was well-known today, 
And you know, some if, if some public intellectual came along today and was advocating ideas like Steiner's, I think they would be vociferously attacked as racist or or as uh, ethnocentric. Even, you know, even though schools have, and they they denounce that. Yeah. They, they still are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, because it's that, that kind of thinking is kind of a it's, it's a paradox because it, what's happened is that you have certain sectors of modern societies that have gone so far in terms of trying to erase the idea of identitarianism, uh, you know, in the idea of, in the say, in the uh, in the sense of say race or gender or something like that, that they end up creating an identitarianism of its own. You know, it's sort of like an anti-identitarian identitarianism. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like the matter. It's like it's like the classic saying about you become what you hate. Yeah, right. totally. And also, uh, Matt, do you want to ask any more questions before we wrap up? Oh uh, no, just kind of less of a question, more of a comment. Um, no, I, I I agree with Keith that I don't see any thinkers in anything like the mainstream or, or anything like uh, you know the academic world that are thinking in this kind of Steiner vein. Uh, but it's really a shame. I think that. A program like yours, Robert, uh, has been a good place for, and you yourself um, have done a good job of kind of delving into this realm of, of thinking, where you're trying to find a balance between different uh, different forces, yeah, even so, individualism. Yeah, that's true because um, like I've only discovered Steiner like his work very actually fairly uh, fairly recently, but that yeah. that actually is like a major theme with my work when I talk about like radical centrism, like it's, trying it's to definitely reconcile. A major theme trying to reconcile these different, uh, like the dichotomy between the left and the right, the modernity versus reactionary, yeah, because it's this not, is... even like what we talked about on our religion show, like I don't, we didn't even, we didn't discuss, we didn't discuss Steiner, but it's uh, relevant to the same theme. Oh, definitely, highly relevant. I may say something about that in a moment, but I just, yeah, just uh, by way, yeah, to pay you a compliment, I guess, um, and, and just sort of wrap this up, like, yeah, no, obviously these topics are kind of forbidden on a mainstream level, but it's really a shame because, uh, as, as you had mentioned earlier, Keith, the times that we're living in now uh, very much uh, mirror, and maybe they're in some ways even worse than the kind of post-industrial revolution uh, social atomization that Steiner and, and, and even Durkheim and like-minded thinkers were responding to. So the, the need for it is immense, but it's, it's harder to talk about now, and unfortunately there's no place for it in the mainstream or in ac- academia. I'm reminded, Robert, of uh, our friend Adam Mayer once sort of paid you a compliment that, uh, you know, your show uh, deals with topics that are controversial, but, uh, you know, talks about these kind of social dynamic issues that, like, we need to talk about. And I think there is, uh, you know, there is a place for it on, I guess, this corner of the Internet, which is good. Whether or not it'll have many uh, real-world world effects, we'll see, because we're sort of ghettoized to the Internet a lot of the time. But, yeah. So, Keith Preston, uh, great show on Rudolf uh, Steiner. Uh, thanks for being on. Also, thanks, uh, Matt. And uh, mm-hmm. before I wrap up, uh, Keith, if you want to plug, uh, plug plug the article like one more time or any other project you want to plug. Yeah, well, everything that I do usually ends up getting posted on attackthesystem.com, which is the main place that I operate from on, on the Internet. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on MeWe. Uh, so you can find any um, work that I do there. Uh, the article that we're discussing hasn't been published yet. I think it's coming out soon in one of Troy Southgate's compilations. Uh, and so that will be available uh, fairly soon as well. Uh, the publisher, Troy's company, is Black, Black Front Press. Uh, 
so be on the lookout for that. Yeah, thanks again, uh, Keith Preston and Matt Pegas. Uh, take care, guys. Take care.